Talk to me, like you talk to someone you love. Zapraszam, Joanna Chmura. Witajcie, zaczynamy pierwszym spotkaniem moją serię wywiadów, które mam nadzieję będą się odbywać w cyklu comiesięcznym. Pierwszym moim gościem jest Shona Nikwest, którą może znacie jako autorkę wielu książek. Książka, do której będę się najczęściej odwoływać, nazywa się Present Over Perfect. Po polsku przetłumaczone to zostało jako dobre życie i o tym dobrym życiu będziemy rozmawiać. Będę pytała Shona, jak to zrobić, żeby dobrze żyć i mam nadzieję, że nie tylko nam pomoże podsumować rok 2020, ale też pomoże nam zaplanować czy odnaleźć się w roku 2021. I just told um, our viewers that you're gonna give us tips and tools and tricks how to handle 2021. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No, but uh, I'm so thankful I met you on the on the on the you know course of my both private but also professional life. So I'm grateful. I'm already grateful for meeting you in person. But first of all, I met you on the on the pages of the book that I came across. So one of the books that Brené mentioned on her nightstand was Present Over Perfect. And that was the moment I bought your book. I bought it in English for, um, as, um, for the very first time. And I, I went through the pages. And the more I was drawn into what you were writing about, the more angry I got. Because you were sort of, a reflection of my inner world trying to get through to my brain and heart. It was something hidden inside of me asking, oh, she's just, just do what Shona is writing about. You're exactly in the same place. Just do as she describes the way of doing it. And I, and I wasn't ready back then. I have to admit that I read the book, put it aside, and I just wasn't ready. But things happen over time. And then I got really ready to actually see what you were writing about and your experiences through my own heart. So let me just dive in uh, straight into the first thing that I want to um, ask you about. Because in your book, I have a quote here, so I'm just going to read it to you. I think it's like a seventh or eighth page. And you, there's a chapter called um, Sea Change. And it's, and it's a quote from Shakespeare uh, from The Tempest. And the quote says, a man is thrown into the sea and under the water, and he's transformed from what he was into something entirely new and something rich and strange. So my question to you, the very first question is, what is your rich and strange in 2020? I think uh, that's a great question. And I love that quote. Um, and taking a step back, I think the idea part of the reason that quote mattered so much to me and the phrase sea change is because I think um, life is difficult and adult life is difficult and we get so many things wrong and I have felt so acutely the things that I have gotten wrong and the idea of a sea change for me is really hopeful because it means there's hope yet for people who have gotten things wrong, like I've gotten things wrong, right? Like, and I think um, if you're a religious person, a sea change, necessarily you think about baptism, about going down into the water as kind of one thing and coming up baptized into something new. And I think in the face of so much that's broken and wrong and difficult in myself and also in our world right now, change is a really hopeful thing. I don't always have to live this way. We don't always have to live this way. When you look at around the things that are broken in me and all around us, we might be able to go down into that deep water and come up a little more whole, a little more healed, a little more transformed. And so I would say 
um, what has been both rich and strange about 2020 is I've had to grapple with some of the worst parts of myself. Um, what I'm thinking about right now really specifically is my impatience and my anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just like diving right in. I'm sorry. I'm starting like really. Yes. <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we do. Just dive in. Um, you know, so we live in New York City in an 800 square foot apartment. And it's my husband and I and my 14 year old son and my nine year old son. And we're all working from home and schooling from home. And it feels a little bit like what I would imagine it would be like if we all worked and went to school inside of a pressure cooker. You know, there are moments that are so sweet and we're like so connected and on each other's wavelength. And also there's just not enough square footage, literally and kind of metaphorically. I think almost everyone right now is feeling sort of squeezed Mm -hmm. to the limit. There's not enough space for me, for my feelings, for my fears, for my anxiety. There's not enough room for me to run and play. There's just everyone, everything feels kind of like this. And I have had to apologize more this year than, you know, probably any other. And I, and so when I think about rich and strange, I think some of the worst parts of myself have been brought to the surface and the only thing hopeful about that is now I'm looking them square in the face and hopefully I'm being transformed along the way through the process of kind of acknowledging uh, all this icky stuff that's coming out and you hold it up to the light and you say, okay, I'm, I'm less patient than I would, than I wish I was. This is a thing that's true about me or these little things. Sometimes I make really big things out of them. And the only hopeful thing about that is if you face it, you can change it. And so that's kind of where I'm landing right now. Does that make sense? It totally does. And I think literally and metaphorically, like um, living in a smaller space that we're, we're accustomed to, or we were, you know, um, enjoying prior COVID-19. I think it, for me, when you were describing the squeeziness, for me, it was like, I used to go to the gym. Maybe it's a silly example, but uh, I used to go to the gym or, uh, you know, to to run somewhere or to... uh, and I had this freedom of leaving the house anytime I wanted. But when the first wave came in and now the second one, I couldn't do it. So I switched to yoga mat. But at the beginning, I was like trying to squeeze in my timetable with all the people around me so that they won't see me doing the yoga stretches and stuff. Because I was, you know, shame and blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. So I was trying to like 6 a.m. before they wake up or in the evening after they go to bed. But after like two weeks or three, it was like, ah whatever and do the cookie they do the cooking i did the yoga they they do the drawing and i was like this is something i would never expect of myself to actually transform into like Mm -hmm. exercising in front of people which was really an intimate thing for me so the the, when you were explaining like like checking the thing that the the parts of yourself that you didn't even know existed like they came to the surface because there was no other option Mm -hmm. it's sort of like part of me is awakening to a different kind of me that wouldn't be awakened unless that things happen. I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, and we've talked a lot in the work that you and I have done together about um, resilience and adaptability. And I think, you know, there's a lot to grieve and mourn and rage over in this year, but I think every one of us 
it's a, it's a useful thing to stop and recognize your own resilience and adaptability. I mean, even in the course of this conversation, you've mentioned two, right? You have all of these tech skills that you never would have had and like good job for learning how to do things you didn't know how to do before out of necessity. That's how we learn things. And um, learning to have your exercise experience be a communal experience, whether or not you wanted that and kind of working through like the vulnerability and desire to hide, like that's adaptability, that's resilience. We're all, we're doing that. And it's worth cataloging in a, in a time of so much loss and frustration. We're, we're still doing it. That's good. Yeah. Yes, um, but, but mention, you mentioned, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you used the word exhaustion, but I think it's part of the, the reality right now, being exhausted with everything that is going on inside of us, within the families, within work and school and all the things you mentioned. But since you are a creative soul, since you are, you're, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but your job is writing, you, you write yeah. for a living and for, for yeah. you know, making your heart stronger and stuff. So how do you, how do you, stay creative in the midst of everything that is going on? How do you keep on writing? I think it's a crucial question for not only writers, but all people who are, you know, who arts, uh, who do arts in a you know, different way. So how do you keep that spirit alive within yourself? That's a great question. Um, one of the things I would say is, I would say in this season, I have been writing a lot and creating a lot um, not in order to get my work done, but for my own sanity and healing, because writing and any kind of creative work is one of the places where especially I'm able to connect with my more negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, happiness is easy for me. Uh, like I, I don't get like all wound up and scared, feel, but it's really hard for me to like own and not try to escape from my negative emotions. But I'm, I'm finding, I, I, there've been several points in the last year where pushing myself to sit down and pour it all out either longhand or at my laptop has been profoundly healing for me. And then I think the other thing is, two other things. One of them is other people's creativity has been such a lifeline for me in this season. Reading has been one of the most important things. Great movies, great shows, great music. I've been so profoundly grateful that other people have been making things to get me through this season. It made me uh, aware of my responsibility as a creative person yeah. to make things that help other people get through. Yes. Uh, you know, it felt like if someone brings you soup and it nourishes you and it makes you feel loved and whole and no longer hungry, it reminds you how important it is to bring someone else soup. And so I think I have held so tightly to other people's creative work that it's reminded me of my own responsibility in that. And then also I would say, I think, you know, everybody's talking about, everybody's making sourdough, everybody's making lasagna. Um, I think cooking is such a creative act and it's physical, Mm -hmm. it's tactile, it's sense oriented. And so uh, Erin and I uh, went for a walk last night and we were joking. I was scrolling through my pictures, especially from like the first five or six months of our quarantine here. All I did was cook. I mean, that's it. It's my entire like um, photo reel is just like a hundred pictures of soup. Um, and so I think, but I think that um, 
being generative, making something is the way through a season like this. It's tempting to think like, I can't make anything. My brain's too cloudy. I'm too tired. I'm just going to kind of consume. I think when you push yourself to make things, even just dinner, it revives the creator in you. I make stuff. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more you do that, the more you feel, feel able to do it. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced the change of the values that were important to you over the course of the last 10 months? Or were are the values the same that you had at the beginning of the year? Well, um, one of the core, I don't usually make like full on resolutions, but the word or concept that I wanted to engage most deeply this year that I decided like on January 1st, 2020 was self-compassion. Mm -hmm. And that felt like very, very timely considering the year that we were going into. Um, and so it's been, this year has been like one invitation after another to forgive myself again for being impatient again, to um, allow myself space and grace again for, you know, so that's been a really good invitation. But I would also say I, I have become more aware of how little we control in terms of our future. Mm -hmm. um, right? Like we think there are so many guarantees. We think we have five-year plans and nobody's going to get in the way of those things. And I think this year has been an exercise in realizing what a mirage those things are. Mm -hmm. um, nobody knows yes. their future with it, with absolute certainty and no one can kind of manhandle their life um, into what they want or need it to be. We're all much more at the mercy mm -hmm. of a larger sphere and then with that, so I would say I, we're, I'm, I'm letting go of the myth of future certainty. Mm -hmm. And I, I think all of us are becoming more and more aware of our interdependence, our mm -hmm. interconnectedness. So maybe releasing the myth of independence. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on this, but I, I think Americans are uniquely obsessed with their idea of, of independence. Mm -hmm. It's like at the core of our origin story, which is not particularly accurate, of course, but um, we are watching the bad fruit that is that that the myth of independence yields right now, yeah. and so I think I'm feeling that really strongly. We exist on behalf of and with and for one another, yes. and the collective good is something we have not, especially as Americans, spent enough time talking and thinking about. Mm -hmm. And the failure of that is being exposed right now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I couldn't agree more because the moment the, in, in Europe and in Poland, the first lockdown was introduced or dropped, I just want to say, um, I immediately thought how grateful I am for the, you know, for the people who work in pharmacies, who people who, the, the mailmen, the, 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 the things that I, I, I'm, you know, it's, I'm not supposed to say it out loud. The inner critic says that I'm supposed, not supposed to say it, but I, I, I just forgot to see those people as, as the ones that we highly, highly are dependent on. And all of a sudden I saw how the, the interconnectedness that you mentioned is, 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 is just, it was, it was just brought to life immediately. I said, oh my God, I rely on so many people that I forgot I rely on. Mm -hmm. And the same with art. I think there was one of the actresses in Poland um, during the pandemic um, gave an, interview and in that interview she said see arts as ken robinson one of in, in one of his ted talks mentioned that we are so highly focused on math and you know all the you know the, the all the 
tech and, and, and geography and all that kind of stuff. And it's really important, but we sort of forget that arts is what help people get through things like, like this. And this actress of, um, that I'm mentioning right now uh, in this interview said something like, try to go through it, what we're going through it without music without films, without dancing, without poems, without books. See, mm -hmm. now it sort of like shifted the way we perceive things. Like all of a sudden, I admire everybody who keeps on working when I can stay at home and, and sort of be safe. Um, at the same time, I admire the people who create. Mm -hmm. And we are so, we, on the financial side of things, the artists, I don't think they're appreciated enough. And this pandemic, I think, showed me how, how important that is to actually help me, but also the people I work with as a psychologist, I, 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 as homers, I give people, you know, movies to watch and songs to sing and, and songs to dance. So, so I, I, it reminded me of, of broadening my perspective, the way I see the world and how, how the, the focus that I was so concentrated on changed, like shifted. So I'm, I'm totally aligned with, with what you were saying. Um, but there was also one thing that I wanted to ask you because you moved to New York like a year ago or something? We moved um, just a little over a year before the pandemic. Yes. And yeah. I, I don't think I would call it, I, I hope I would call it in the proper way, but you moved from a um, house into an apartment? Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. So and we live, yeah, we lived in the suburbs of the Midwest and now we live in Manhattan. And I, when I was, and I was thinking about our conversation, I, I was, I thought how, how funny from the universe perspective, like moving you from, from I guess, a, a freedom of space into something mm -hmm. smaller where the same happened to the world, like from something. Totally. To, so do you see any, you know, um, insights or parallel realities between those move? Well, you know, when we, um, anybody who's moved like a long distance, um, you know that your world, right when you get to that new place, your world gets pretty small because like you don't know anybody, you know, and we knew maybe three families here, but not super well. And I would say to my husband and the town that we had been in was the town that we both grew up in. Our extended families were there. My college roommates were there. My childhood friends were there. Like a very known and familiar place. And so I would, we would joke with each other. I'd be like, Aaron, now that we're in New York, you're my best friend, but you're like my first best friend. You're also my second best friend. You're like, you're like my top 10 most important people in my life. And then the 11th one is like the lady that I met at school pickup. Like I, you're it for me. Um, and it, it pushed us into a really, I think really lovely dependence on each other that we hadn't had for a long time. And we've been married for a long time. Uh, we've been married for almost 20 years. Um, but I think when I look back, he was so close to his brother and some of the people that he worked with. And I was so close to my parents and my neighbors and my cousins. And there was an extent to which there was a whole village of us kind of meeting each other's needs and caring for each other. It was all kind of spread out in this group. And all of a sudden it was like, it's only you and me. Um, and our kids, you know, they were used to having grandparents around and cousins and all that. And all of a sudden they were like, I know you guys. And then like a bunch of strangers at school. And so we did experience both our relational world getting really small. Mm -hmm. And then also our physical space becoming really like kind of limiting. Um, and 
and in that way, I think this was a little bit less of uh, a hard transition for us. We were used to spending a lot of time together <laughs> in a small space. Um, one of the big changes for us, though, was travel. Um, even when we moved to New York, and maybe because we moved there, we still traveled a lot traveled back to see our families. They came to visit us a lot. We traveled a lot for work. To end all that was like, oh, we've never <laughs> gotten this we long. not moved. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. But I do think, um, yeah, we joked about it a little bit that we had, we had experiencing kind of, we had experienced our world getting a lot smaller already. And then we were like, oh, oh, even smaller? Oh, deep breath. Okay. <laughs> But you realize, yeah, but you realize what you can make it through, you know, Um, and how much you don't need. I think that's one thing we've been thinking about. So we, in just in the course of moving, you know, we didn't live in a like big house by any means, but it was a house as opposed to an apartment. And we got rid of so much stuff to come here. And then after a year, we were like, why did we have all that stuff? Mm -hmm. Like we didn't need all that. And now we look in our closets, we're like, how many pairs of high heels do I need? I haven't worn them at all this year, you know, but I think you realize what, when you think, you know, what things we need Mm -hmm. and what things we think we need, they're pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were mentioning the traveling, um, the traveling part of your life, that was such a huge part of your life, not only for your, you know, because of the private life, uh, but also for work, I guess. And I want to go back for a second to what you, I, I've watched a few interviews of yours um, uh, in preparation for this talk. And in one of them, you mentioned that, that in your previous life, I mean, life before the shift came or the change came in, all the transformation began, you were sort of in a constant mode of traveling, like being here and there and giving talks and conference and attending this and that. And then something changed. And I have two questions. Could you pinpoint the moment that things that you saw things differently, but also I'm so curious to find out how did you manage not to fall back into the trap of being needed like you were before? Because I think I, when I look at myself, it's so, even if I promise myself, oh, I'm going to you know, do like less or travel less. Now it's easier to say travel less because I don't, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it, I'm sometimes so tempted to the old ways of, of things being, because I, I assume that you were, you for some the moment you decided that your life needs to change, you still kept on um, having invitations from here and there. And how did you manage to stay on the track of change and not going back to what it used to look like? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions. Um, one of the, I, I had a very distinct moment and I've told this story sometimes. I was speaking at a retreat in Dallas, Texas. And for whatever reason, the way my schedule had gone that fall, I think I had been in Dallas like maybe three or four times already, and but always different events, but you know, same airport, same everything. And, and I, you know, a lot of the work that I did in those days was being gone on weekends. And that, so it was like, this, I was experiencing a little bit of that, like, I keep getting on flights and going to the same city and doing the same things with different people. And but disconnected from one another. And I remember going up on one of the lunch breaks. I um, went back up to my room and I just laid down on my bed, like fully clothed and like staring at the ceiling. And I said to myself, if anybody else wants to try to live this life I've created for myself, they're so welcome to it, but I can't do it anymore. Um, And I think looking back on it for a lot of different reasons, some of it is gender, some is personality, some is upbringing, some is religious background. 
um, I very rarely asked myself, what do you love? What makes you happy? What brings you joy? What brings out the best in you? I asked, um, what do they need? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, I think that's it. I think that's the only question. What do they need? Um, and, And I didn't, it didn't occur to me to do the math of this is hard on my body or this is hard on my relationships or this is hard on my own heart or that, you know, I had the capacity to get it done. And so I did. And then when I started, I started realizing over time, over many years, the toll that it had taken on so many other parts of my life. um, That's when I started saying, this isn't worth it to me anymore. Mm -hmm. But I will say, absolutely. I did not get it right, right away. When I said I need to stop traveling so much, I would put like, you know how this is. I'd be like, okay, um, now I'm only going to go once a month. Yes. So you'd book something once a month and then something wonderful would come up for that same month. And you'd be like, well, I mean, just like at one more. And, um, and so I did that really badly for a long time. Just kind of, uh, I ended up right where I said I didn't want to be because I always edit in one more thing or this one will be so fun or don't worry about it or this one's for a friend or whatever. For me, really the only um, thing that helped was uh, accountability from other people. Mm-hmm. I had to talk with other people in my life who were not as codependent as I was. Um, and they, they said things like, you already have something for this month. So I think you know the answer. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> and it's hard, you know, yeah. it, it's hard. It's hard to disappoint people. Um, it's hard when people put like religious or spiritual pressure on that. It's hard when people say things like, if you keep saying no, people are going to stop asking. Yeah. It's hard, you know, when people imply that maybe it's because you're not a hard worker or you're not as flexible, or you're not as ambitious. And I had to get to a point in my life where I said the quality of my life is worth more to me than what people I'm not in relationship with think about me when I'm not there. Mm -hmm. I have to be okay with the fact that they might put down the phone and be like, she's kind of a lazy person who doesn't care about uh, doing good work in the world. And also she's whatever. I I just had to say like, they have every right to say that if they want to. What I get from saying no to that is a life that I love. And that's Mm -hmm. worth more to me. But it was hard for me to do that. It took a lot of work and it took a lot of getting it wrong and then feeling the pain of it and having to get it right again. Yes. And I still don't get it right every time, but I'm getting better. <laughs> no, I, I think it's so important, especially for people who, um, who are, where, and will be on that path to, to, to keep on reminding all of us that it's not like you make a decision on the 22nd of December and it's done. It's, it's sort of like building muscles and sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you, you ask, say yes to five things instead of one, and then you keep on regretting. So you, and, and it's, it's, it's a messy kind of transformation. I wish there was like a, like a, like a switch. It's like mm-hmm. in the Dallas room when you were lying there, it's like switch, like the next yep. day, it's like shh, everything's changed, but it's not. So I just want to thank you for sharing that, but also thank you for reminding us that it takes time and practice and, and, and because of the New Year's coming, maybe the New Year's resolution will not unfold as we expect them to unfold. And, and in March, we'll be still doing something we wanted to drop in January. But, but it's, 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 it's the way it's sort of supposed to be. So thank you so much for reminding that. But actually, that brings me to another quote that I want to share with you. Not with you, because you, you already know it. <laughs> with, 
with our viewers because there's there's this beautiful quote that says part of being an adult is taking responsibility for resting your body and soul part of being an adult is learning to meet your own needs because when it comes down to it with a few exceptions no one else is going to do it for you and how on earth do you do that please tell us <laughs> i don't do it perfectly but i do it a little bit better uh, maybe every quarter, every couple months. And uh, I think part of it is I spent a long time waiting for somebody else to do it for me, right? Mm -hmm. And um, people will take as much from you as you allow them to take. Mm -hmm. we, we train people in relationships, right? We, we engage with them in ways that help them understand the way we're, we're gonna engage with them in the future. So if you always say yes, to bailing out this person at the last minute, you have taught them that you're a person who will always bail them out at the last minute. If you neglect your health to meet one of their needs, you're telling them, I will always neglect my health to meet your needs. Um, and I got that wrong enough times and it was painful enough and it had enough negative consequences for my own health and my marriage and my family that I kind of had to flip everything and I had to learn how to disappoint some people in order to care for myself and the people who are the most important to me. And it still feels awkward to me sometimes. One thing that really helps me is to um, find people in my own life who do this really well and like shamelessly copy them. So like I have a friend in my life right now who I love and I think the world of her and I would say, she does a really good job of taking care of herself. She sleeps when she's tired. She goes to the doctor often. She says no when she can't do something. She puts limitations on things that will or won't work for her. She has this sense of like, I understand how to steward my own like mental and physical resources. And I'm like, she's a miracle. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do that. But I'm learning by watching her. So I think 10 years ago, I would have looked at her and I would have been like, oh, must be so nice to think you're so special, you know, it's and so now elegant. I look at her. Yeah. And now I look at her and I'm like, I'm taking notes. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't necessarily yet have the right impulses, mm -hmm. but I'm learning some of the right practices by watching her and mm -hmm. it's really helpful. Yeah. But do you literally ask yourself questions like, what do I need? What do I need right now? I'm that. starting to learn that. And um, I, one thing that has been really helpful for me, and this is like a little bit of a divergence, but it's really helped me. Um, I've struggled with chronic pain for the last several years and it goes in waves. And it's been worse and better. And I started talking with a therapist about it and she connected me with um, the work of Dr. Sarno, which is a New York spinal surgeon mm -hmm. um, who wrote a book called the mind body connection. I don't, I don't remember the exact title. Well, one of them is called healing back pain, but um, so he uh, was at Columbia, I think for a long time, I might be getting that wrong. And he encountered all of these people who came in with just um, debilitating back pain, just like couldn't walk screaming on the ground, couldn't work. And he did all of the assessments and said, there's, there's nothing like structurally physiologically wrong with you and he got to the point where he said listen I'm a surgeon my whole livelihood is based on me finding a solution here but what I what I know about you is there's a certain group of people who are carrying things in their body and he says it's the unthinkable thoughts and the unfeelable feelings mostly from childhood oh. 
And so then this therapist that I know that I was working with was saying pain is raising its voice and it's asking you to treat it with some, with sensitivity and compassion and to ask questions. And so these days when I feel in my neck or in my back, that pain, instead of like stretching really hard or moving on to the next thing or taking more Advil or having another glass of wine or hoping I'll forget. Um, I stop and I really do say like, I'm so sorry that you're feeling this. What is it that you're trying to tell me? And what is it that I haven't yet listened to you? Um, to you? What, what story have I not yet made space for in my life? I know that sounds like probably really like woo-woo to a lot of people, but... Not to us here. No. Really <laughs> good. You're in a safe space. <laughs> I, I, I am learning so much right now about what our bodies have to tell us and what our pain has to tell us. Yeah. And I have spent, you know, most of my 40 something years trying to outrun my feelings and overpower my body. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning now to, um, if I'm ever going to grow, it's because I listen mm-hmm. to my feelings and to my body, not because I outrun or escape them. Yes. And it's, and it's, and it's really hard to escape right now because we literally cannot do that. Mm-hmm. So as if it, the universe or whatever words we could use, it's sort of like stopping us and, and then asking us stop and listen. Because I, one of the interviews, you, you beautifully described the process that when we are in the running mode, there are whispers coming in from inside of us saying like, stop, stop, stop. But we were just like, won't listen to it or we will listen to it and then we don't you know like never mind like whatever later in an hour in two and in a week or like next vacation but the stronger the voice gets the stronger the pain gets i guess and it's either physical or emotional and sometimes we have to reach a moment in which it just literally stops us in our tracks and we and it's either a disease or a broken relationship or um, a breakdown, as, uh, as our mutual friend Brenna Brown mentioned in her TED talk, like spiritual breakdown, you just collapse because otherwise there are two options. Otherwise you'll, you'll just literally kill yourself uh, by neglecting yourself or you just drop everything you put on yourself or the armor, all the um, unthought thoughts and un- unfelt emotions. And then you have to sort of like pile by pile get to the, to the, the the thing inside of you that is the author of the of the whisper and then the scream and then the the outrage so you have to connect to that thing inside of you and my question to you is how how do you stay connected with this this part of yourself that is talking to you every single day i think i'm i'm learning to kind of check in with that voice more and more often throughout the day. Um, this sounds so silly, but I am going to like reach and show you this. Um, it's not silly, but um, are you familiar with this? It's the five minute journal. No. So, and this is not, this is not like, I'm not like sponsoring, but I, this is not like a paid promotion. A friend of mine, yeah. a friend of mine sent me this as a gift and I thought, so I've seen it for years. People love it. People like do it perpetually. And I thought I'm a writer. Like I, I write way more than five minutes a day. <laughs> But then a friend gave it to me and it's literally like you open it up in the morning and it's, I'm grateful for what would make today great. And then a daily affirmation. I am dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. 
And at the end of the day, three amazing things that happened today. And how could I have made today even better? That's it. And I've been doing it for probably a month. And even just in a month, I can see the through lines of what bothers me, Mm -hmm. what delights me, what brings me pain, what brings me fear. Um, And so little things like that, I feel like that's an example of I'm trying to pay better attention all throughout my day. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to build in more silence. Um, I used to be a person who had um, like music or a show on absolutely all the time. Um, and then I realized that the only time I ever cried was in the shower. Oh, wow. And I think it's because there, it was the only time there was ever silence. And I started to realize, like, I think I need more silence just generally in my life. Like I need to let my feelings and my body talk to me a little bit more and it feels really difficult and really necessary. Yeah. But I think it's hard in New York city, I guess (laughs) to find that solitude and silence. It is except uh, like on the street, everybody else in the world has their earbuds in. They're not talking to you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's in some ways it's very silent. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a great point with the, with the, with the, um, stopping the world creating all the noises and just to hear yourself in silence. Cause I think again, I, as you, as you mentioned, it's reconnecting to the inner voice that is, that want to talk to you. And some, for some people it's showering for some people, I think it's jogging for, for me, I guess it's, it's doing the yoga thing, but, um, but it's, it's making space, literally space and time. Uh, and, and, and in your daily schedule, just, just to stop, and just listen. And for some people, I think for some people who are so in their heads, it's, it can be, honestly, it can be, um, they get into a panic mode when mm-hmm. once they stop and not talking or listening or, or, or doing stuff. I think we are not as humankind right now. We're not accustomed to being in, in, in quiet in silence. Mm-hmm. In so, um, what would be your advice to some people who are listening to us and watching us? What would be the first step to start creating the space for that? You know, I think some of it is silence and some of it is um, minimizing the amount of other people's opinions coming at you all the time. So number one, I read something great and it was, it was about like managing our like technology and social media and phones. But someone said like, there have always been, people have strong opinions. Like a friend of mine who was a pastor for many years, uh, now he's retired. He was like, listen, not everybody ever liked what I, like there was never a Sunday where people universally loved what I did, but they had to hate it so much that they were willing to find a piece of paper and an envelope and a pen and a stamp. That's a lot. Like very few people are willing to do that right now, but they'll just get on their phone for any darn little thing, you know? So we've created a culture of all of these opinions. And I was reading an article and they said, like, when in other kinds of culture, do you put thousands of people's opinions in your pocket, on your body and carry them around all day and assume that that's not going to have adverse consequences, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Thousands of people's ideas and outrage and experiences and reflections all in this little package in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, dangerous thing. And so I think I'm really becoming more and more, you know, a lot of people say technology is neutral inherently. 
and technology may be philosophically neutral inherently, but we know that social media is not. Mm -hmm. It is not neutral. It was designed to bring out certain aspects of us and to uh, silence or suppress other aspects. It, you know, it's really good at making you want to buy things mm -hmm. and making you want to think like other people and making you uh, stoking your anger and your envy. It's not great at um, individualism mm -hmm. or original thought or um, silence or sorrow or tenderness, really important human things. And so I, I, I know I'm sort of like on my soapbox now about social media, but I think <laughs> that one of the, when I think about the lack of silence in my life, minutes without music playing is not that valuable if I'm spending those minutes and a lot of other minutes scrolling through other, pe other people's opinions about life. Yeah. And so I think a lot of it is about building in good boundaries about whose voices you're letting in. Mm -hmm. And then just on a really practical level, um, almost everybody, uh, you know, on one side, poets and artists, on the other side, you know, scientists and neurologists, everybody talks about the beginnings and the endings of our day being sort of the most thin or sacred or permeable spaces in our lives. And so I think if you're talking about building any meaningful practice of silence, you start there. If uh, I have lots of friends and I, I try to do this, I don't do it super well, who limit um, what they what they input first thing in the morning till like they start their work day or who wind down their laptop time or phone time or social media time at a certain point in the evening. So there are edges to the day that aren't so screeny. I think that's really, really important for us um, to get outside, to focus on natural light, to focus on physical connection with other people um, instead of letting uh, every margin of our life be kind of pressed upon with other people's voices. So I would say if you're, if you're thinking about a meaningful practice of silence, I would literally say I started with five minutes in the morning and five minutes at bedtime. And it felt like an eternity. Yes. I, every single time I would think like, oh, my phone, my phone timer stopped working. It's been, it's been 30 minutes for sure. It had been 90 seconds. It's really, really hard when you first start. It just, and your whole, your mind, and when you were talking about how overwhelming silence is for people who are not used to it, I would get angry. I would get scared. I would cry. And I would think like, this clearly is not working. Silence is making me miserable. <laughs> yes. And I'm having even more thoughts than I had prior to that totally. stupid exercise. Yeah. Silence is way worse. Um, but I think it's like flushing out. Um, sometimes we talk about when you picture like the oil and the vinegar mm -hmm. in like a, in, in a really traditional Italian restaurant or probably American Italian restaurant, they have the, uh, there's always like a cruet of oil and vinegar and it usually has separated, right? Because mm -hmm. there's not like an emulsifier in it. So there's that thick olive oil at the bottom. And then at the top, there's that thin red wine vinegar. And it's sort of like, it doesn't look like red wine. It looks like almost like a rosé, like a thin pink. And my friend Jerry always told me that in prayer, but I think it's true in any sort of silence or meditation, you have to start pouring. And the first thing that's going to come out is the vinegar. It's going to be everything you're mad about, everything that annoys you, everything you're scared of, everything you wish that person had done. It is the powerful, angry self. And then once all that gets poured out, you get to the oil. You know, oil is a sacred image in the Bible, very valuable. We talk about, you know, olives being pressed and crushed to yield something so beautiful and fragrant, fragrant and delicious. And 
um, the oil, we all have it, right? That's the goodness. It's the love. It's the possibility. It's the hope. It's inside of all of us. But you don't access it until you're willing to pour out that vinegar first. It always comes first. But you have to trust. Yes. There's more in there than just vinegar. Yes. There's always oil. <laughs> always, always. Always oil. Oh, that's a beautiful metaphor, right? Um, especially for the ones who... Um, no, I want to say for the ones who cook, but also for the ones who, who, who want to see that when you set your foot on that path of personal growth at the beginning, like everything again, it's just, you just seem to see all the mistakes, all the you know, blaming possibilities, like the parents, the education, the church, this and that, but you have to like go through it. And then comes the beauty out of all the, yeah, Ugliness. I feel like the clearest example of that for me is yoga, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm an, a, an intermittent yoga practicer. And so I do it just rarely enough that my first session back is always just everything hurts and everything's wrong. <laughs> like the entire first experience is like, why would anyone ever do this? And also my entire body is broken, you know, but then you realize that that's what it is to be a beginner, right? That's what it is. And you notice all the pain and all the strain and all the stretching and it, it becomes normal over time, but the beginning is going to be ugly of anything. Yes. It's funny that you say that because during the, the pandemic and my, you know, um, conversion to like uh, isolated yoga to yoga within everybody just walking over my yoga mat, I, <laughs> I played a video in which this instructor, she's, she's awesome in so many ways, but she said the very first sentence she said, it was a meditation, like a two-minute meditation before we even started to practice. We were sitting there, cross-legged, like eyes closed. And she said the very first sentence, you would expect like, like connect to your inner, like Shiva or like whatever they tend to send, say. But um, the very first sentence that came out of her mouth was like, you don't even have to like that idea that you're here right now. <laughs> it's like, I don't like it, but I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> yeah, you don't even have to like the idea that you're sitting here right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Just accept it. And, and it just, like, release the tension. Like, I have to be, you know, I have to like yoga because yoga is so yoga. Yeah. Um, she just, like, let the door open. It's like, you don't even have to like being here, like, at the very beginning. Just, just, just keep on doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a, a sort of a different kind of question prepared for you. It's, it's on my list. And I was like, should I ask her that or should I not? And um, it's a celebrity crush kind of question. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I don't know if, if Oprah was your celebrity kind of role model or inspiration, but what was the experience of meeting her face to face and talking to her? Oh, it was extraordinary. It was, um, you know, there are people who... I think most of us have had this experience in some way where like everything you believe about them, it, you know, it's like spectacular. And then you meet them and it's like, it's, mm -hmm. it's not like that. And you still appreciate them for like what they do, but you're like, mm, that, okay. This was just the opposite. Just mm -hmm. um, what you want to believe about her in terms of brilliance and warmth and uh connecting with you in a deep way and then simultaneously managing a million other things around her, but making you feel like the only person in the room. It was absolutely an extraordinary, wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, what was the, the one thing that you remember from that day when you went to bed in the evening and you thought of this day, 
you know, coming to fruition? What was the one thing that you remember vividly about that day? I think it's that thing. Um, A lot of times people are either super clued into you, but then like sort of disconnected from everything else. There are people who like, you know, would walk out into traffic because they're so deeply in conversation or whatever. Or there's people who are so aware of what's happening around them that they're only like half an eye to you. She was simultaneously both things. And it was so remarkable to me. Um, she was fully in command of the entire experience. And also I would have sworn that we were the only two people there. She has a a very unusual like capacity and power. It's Mm -hmm. extraordinary. It's beautiful. I think because it's like marrying the two forces that usually are separated from each other. Like you have to like sort of, yeah, use your brain either for this or that. And Mm -hmm. from what you're experiencing with her is like she, she can do she can, she can dance with the both, both of them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to wrap up in a second. Um, okay. But um, I just, I just have two questions left for you. What are your hopes and dreams for 2021 is the first one. I would say I am a little more reticent to, I still think that there's so much unknown right now. And I think I'm, I'm feeling, we've had so many expectations for what we thought this year was gonna look like and they have largely not come to fruition. So I, I feel a little reticent to be like, it's gonna be this. Um, the thing Aaron and I are aching for most specifically is it's been really hard to not see our extended families. And so if there's a, just a deep desire or longing for 2021, uh, like my mom sent me a text last night and she's making these little um, like chocolate cups for some special Christmas thing. And I just had this like, I really want to be at her kitchen table right now. You know, I viscerally miss getting to be in the kitchen with her or sitting by the fire with her. Or um, So I think that for families that have been separated for so long, that's one of the things I'm really aching for, for us and for everyone. So I know there's a lot with the vaccine and with that, a lot of things have to go right to allow that, but that disconnection, there've been a lot of good, um, it's okay that we're not all busy all the time. It's okay that this, it's okay that this, I don't know that there's anything redemptive or hopeful or beautiful about families not spending a holiday together. You know, I get that it's the right thing to do and, and that's what we're doing and I believe in it, but I don't know that there's a, anything real beautiful to be gained from people mm-hmm. being lonely right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm longing for connection, especially with family and mm-hmm. especially older family members. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I totally hear you because sometimes the, the our life paths, look like we didn't appreciate it, but now we're missing this and we start to appreciate it. But in your case, and in so many cases of the, of the stories that I hear, is like, they already appreciated it prior to that. <laughs> and I don't need it. I didn't need the lesson of, you know, being more appreciative of your parents. Like they're going to like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I've already done that. And it's like, what's the lesson? What's the, what's the, cause it's really sometimes too hard to actually see the good. That's the spark mm-hmm. in the dark. It's, it's sometimes yeah. really hard. And I, and yeah. I totally, totally understand yeah, the, the way you're feeling right now because, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's a it's, it's a strange lesson to take it's mm -hmm. a, yeah we don't know what the lesson is all about uh, mm -hmm. yet yep um, and my very last question is what what did you have to grieve in 2020 and what is going to be born in 2021 hmm. there has been so much to grieve this year and a lot of it you know is about not seeing our families but also um you know, our kids are nine and 14. We, we keep saying like, oh, I promise this is not what our 14 year old thought his big eighth grade year was going to be like, you know? Um, so there's just, there's a lot of those like life milestones that they didn't get this year that like, we're okay. We didn't, I didn't have any special milestones for being 44, but um, watching them be lonely or be isolated or be bored uh, has been hard to watch and to know that there, there's not a lot that we can do to mitigate that right now. I mean, we can try, we can be as present as we can, but I'm not like a cool 14 year old he can hang out with. <laughs> um, Although so you think, are cool, but well, not cool. <laughs> but don't, don't tell him, not according to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that part of it, I think has, has felt so like a big loss. And then I think also the, and this is, watching our institutions fail us so spectacularly, watching the lack of leadership. Um, we have, in my lifetime at least, I have never had to depend on the American government in the way that we have needed to this last year. And they have not been a de de dependable um, source of leadership. And there's a lot to grieve there. Um, so much loss of life could have been avoided, so much politicization of things that never should have been political. And uh, that has been really painful and infuriating. And uh, we, there's a lot to grieve there about what the cost of that is for all of us. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, it's unfortunately pretty similar to what's happening in Poland. And I think I would add to what you're mentioning also the loss of trust towards mm -hmm. that people that we sort of, uh, some of us did because of the election. We, we, uh, in, in the last election that we had, it was pretty similar to what you guys were experiencing, like half and half. So half of Polish people wanted this government to be governing right now, but uh, half, of, half of them don't. Either way, it's, it's mm -hmm. the when you allocate trust or when you, you want to have somebody who is in charge that you feel that you can trust, it's, it's, it's such a, it's, it's a beautiful resource and we lack this resource right now. Yeah. Like, and, and this is, I think trust is going to be a, a wound that it's going to heal the longest, I guess. Yeah. Um, in, 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 yeah. As far as the country is concerned. Uh, I so, agree. Yeah. But um, I want to I want to end on a high note. <laughs> well, you, you asked me what what's going to get born. Yes, uh, and um, I think I, I have a personal one, and I have a, a more global one. The more global one is I do think um, things that we took for granted, things that were a very normal part of our normal lives, will now we will now realize how special they are. Mm -hmm. um, the first time I get to hug someone that is not in my little circle, um, 
I, there was a moment where I was, we were talking about what do you miss most? Like most, like not, not what matters the most, but just like, what's a thing. And I said, like, I want to dance at a wedding. I want, like, I want a crowded dance floor, not like a club. Like I want grandmas and little kids. I want, and I want it to be like hot and sweaty and people are bumping into each other and there's joy and silliness. And I think there were probably a lot of weddings in the last couple of years where I like danced three songs and then went home because, because you didn't know how precious those moments were then, you know, and you didn't know that there would ever be a scenario where you, they would be taken away. And so I think we will connect and celebrate in, in ways we will understand the value of those things more deeply, I think. And I think that's valuable. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. And then, and um, personally, I've been working on a new book for a long time. And I mean, like, I have just wrestled with this one. I've probably written seven full books, thrown six of them out. Um, And this is in early 2021, I'll turn in a manuscript because it's just, you know how sometimes you get, you just wrestle with something forever and ever. And then at a certain point you're like, Mm -hmm. it's time. Mm -hmm. I'm the boss of this book (laughs) and it's time to finish it. And I'm ready to build it and then walk away from it in a really freeing way. Like I, I've been wrestling with it for so long and I'm ready to take the big next steps in putting it together and then moving on to something else. So that'll be a good passage for me to get to finish something and then move forward. Beautiful. Yeah. Looking forward very much to that. And because you don't know that because I haven't had a chance to tell you this, but, um, but first I met you through your book. And, and I was reading the words and I was reading the sentences and the chapters and the whole book. And, and, and as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I was half and half, like half tempted to go deeper and half like, like, just, Shona, just, just, just stop doing what you're doing, whatever you're doing. <laughs> and then I heard you speak. And it was like, if you can imagine dancing stars, like holding hands, oh. sort of like like dancing to the music of your words when I, when I, when I could hear your voice and meet you in person, there was like, I don't know, like like sort of like a magic happened and the way you dance with the words and the way you explain complex topics in such a beautiful and easy to grasp, sometimes too easy because it's like, 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 like holding my hands, like Joanna, just think, you know, deeper in a deeper way about what she's writing about. You, you have this, this huge gift of explaining complex and wicked problems in a way that, that I want to join in and, and do this dance. And, and the way you explain lying in the Dallas hotel and the way you, you, you describe the food or food preparation in your books. And, and it's just like, like when you read the words that you wrote, it makes me feel like there are layers of the, of, of experiencing life that I wasn't even aware of. It's like, it's like as if you, you peel, like, look at this and look at that. And there's something behind it and, and next to it. And, and it's like, sort of, you look at the same pan <laughs> and, and you all of a sudden see different layers and colors and mm-hmm. textures and, and sounds it even makes. So you bring so much richness going back to the very first quote, actually, that I, that I mentioned in this talk. It's like, 
you are the rich and strange in, in 2020 to me for sure and hopefully for Aww. many people so thank oh, you so Joanna, much that is a that is a huge compliment and you have no idea how deeply i uh what a gift that is to hear you say that thank you that I will hold that with me. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure you're aware of that. I mean, your brain probably is aware of that, but I just want to remind you that because you write in English and your books are translated into different languages like Polish, you affect or you, you, you have a chance of influencing or showing people the way you see the world in so many parts of the globe that, mm. that so just be aware <laughs> how rich and strong your words can be. So thank you for writing the things you're writing and for the, all the books that you're going to write in, in the future, because Aww, um, here in Poland, you. we do read them. Thank you thank so much. You. Thank you. It has been so fun to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for accepting the invitation and thank you for sharing not only your, your professional path, but also the personal um, pieces um, and the emotions that accompany it. So thank you for being authentic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Merry Christmas. Yes. Talk to me like you talk to someone you love. Zapraszam. Joanna Chmura.